This episode of Your Neighborhood Black Friends is brought to you by Kelly's Olympian on Southwest 4th and Washington. This Friday, October 22nd at 7 p.m., come see Comedy All-Stars presented by Dirty Angel Entertainment. Tickets are $10. Learn more at kellysolympian.com and thank you, Kelly's. Hey, neighbor. This is Cameron Witten with my co-star, Apple in My Eye. Aw. Yeah. <laughs> Love you. And we had a true interview today. This was a oh. ringer. Can I say ringer? Or you can make fun of me for using that word. No. Jolly what? Williger. I don't DJ- know what it means, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it was like a 60s term. Oh. Well, DJ OG1 was a true ringer and... Amazing story. We were both born in the Northern Virginia area, but uh, he grew up in Watts. And his experience growing up in a gang-impacted community um, impacted his life journey. And we thought we were going to be talking about sports. We thought we were going to be talking about music. But... Instead, we're talking about murder, mayhem, and cults. And we really are. <laughs> we That is all we can say. You got to listen to this episode to find out more. Uh, make sure to stay on for our news topic. We are talking about police accountability in Portland. Always a great topic of discussion. <laughs> and then also listen to our hot takes. We have a new awesome Patreon exclusive from our past guest, Mike Schmidt. So if you want to hear some very salty, slappy <laughs> they were content. too explicit for the mainstream. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to see what Cameron's really like. <laughs> only fans. No. <laughs> oh it's basically our only fans. This is as close as I think we're going to get for now. I don't know. Cameron's been putting himself out there. I have uh. put myself out there. All right. Find us on Patreon and enjoy this episode <laughs> or else. <laughs> well, DJ OG1. Great to meet you. Likewise. Unless, did we go to high school together? <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to age yourself. So actually, fun fact, because I saw this here on our little cheat sheet, you were born in Falls Church. Falls Church, Virginia. I was raised in Sterling, Virginia. Wow. Right? Wow. Right? Small world. Small, small world. How That's long were you good. there? Um, I was born there. I was there until about the age of five. Okay, then, so maybe you remember something. Yeah, and then... Uh, Were you ever around for cicada season? I would know. Lucky. Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so you were in, instead in California? Yeah, yeah. So Cal, no Cal? Uh, Southern California, okay. yeah. Nice. Yeah, Watts. Okay. South right Central. outside of L.A. I've been to Watts. South, yeah, uh, yeah, South Central, I, you yeah. know, all parts of L.A. Yeah. Yeah, but mainly, mainly Watts. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. No, it wasn't too nice, but it was, it was like, it was violent. My bad. You know, we're important. You have to be passive aggressive. Man, Watts, Watts is, was, uh, it, it, it prepared mm-hmm. me for a lot of things in life, mm-hmm. you know, and it was, it was not cool, you know, you know, just gang infested neighborhoods, mm-hmm. drugs, all those kind of things. And so, as a kid, you know, you're in that environment and you're conditioned to believe that that's mm. normal. Like, Damn. that's just, this is just how life was. And, you know, so by the age of 10, I had already been, you know, influenced by gangs and all that kind of stuff because all my friends were 
affiliated, you mm-hmm. know, either in it. And so, you, you know, you came down to certain choices. Either you were going to be a gang member, you're going to be a drug dealer, mm-hmm. you're going to be a pimp, you're going to be an mm-hmm. athlete, or you're going to be the person that everyone beat up on. Can, I didn't want to be that dude. And, you know, at that time, at 10, I wasn't, you know, I knew how to play basketball, but I wasn't really that great at basketball. So, you know, I kind of crossed between the athletics and and just my friend, all my friends were gang members. So it was like, that was my hood. <laughs> uh, so not to date you or anything, but just to try and... Um uh, contextualize this a little bit, especially with your career. Uh, we'll get into like some of the youth mentorship too, but just on the hip hop side, like obviously South Central and Watts were like really big in hip hop. So were you around for like, were you in Watts or in LA area for like the rise of what everybody knows about, you know, the Dr. Dre and all this? Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, you know, because when I grew up, I was always around music. Right. Even when I was in Virginia as a child, because my dad was a musician, and so music was around me. And he, you know, I got my first electric guitar and bass guitar when I was like five, six years old. I couldn't hold the damn thing, but, you know, he would sit it on my lap, and you know, I would strum it. So when I went to L.A., uh, I didn't have access to that type of mm-hmm. stuff, but, you know, I always had music around me. So uh, when hip-hop hit, for me, I think it was about probably like 79, you know, 1979 when Rapper's Delight, you mm-hmm. know, hit. Because mm-hmm. prior to that, you know, it was funk, R&B, you know. So when, you know, Rapper's Delight came out, it was like, what was that? And mm-hmm. at that time, I actually was staying in Compton, mm-hmm. living in Compton at the time. And when Raptors, when that came out, I was like, wow, wow. But it was more or less, oh, this is something new as music, but I wasn't really at a point where I was engaged with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, oh, this is dope. What is this? This is good music because it had, you know, old school uh, disco sample in it. And then it had, you know, something new, you know, that I, did, I wasn't familiar with, you know. But, yeah, I was there right when hip-hop first hit the scene in L.A. Wow. Were you, like, instantly, like, this is my genre or, like... you? Like, did it take a while to take hold and stuff? Because, like, for me, that was all I had, right, from when I was born and stuff. So, like, it's interesting for me to think about a time where it's, like, hitting and you're, like, you know, and it's new. Yeah. Um, no. Actually, interesting enough, it, like, again, it was dope. When it yeah. came out, it was like, oh, man, this is dope. This is something new. But I was so heavily influenced by, you know, soul music, R&B, mm-hmm. funk, that, you know, Parliament, Parliament Funkadelic was my 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 thing right there and you know between that stevie wonder you know those type Mm. of classic artists you know at that time was really a heavy influence but as as hip-hop started to grow and they were sampling particularly west coast you know end up when you're sampling the george clinton's and Mm -hmm. and the parliament funkadelic Mm -hmm. delics that's when it was like oh yeah this is this is it Mm. oh that crossover that's yeah 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 cool well, one thing that, you know, a lot of folks might not know, but you, we were talking about before we started recording, uh, you know, again, you mentioned just the tumult of, you know, where you grew up in, in, in SoCal. Uh, and one of the ways out was to be an athlete. And that's actually something that you pursued. You were going to be an Olympian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, once I, I got pulled away from the whole 
my neighborhood, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was through a mentor who asked, also was my pastor at the time, uh, pulled me out and just introduced me into uh, sports mm-hmm. more heavily. He was a basketball player. And, you know, at the time, I really loved swimming. Mm-hmm. But Watts didn't have a lot of places right. where you can go swimming. And so, and I was living in Compton at mm-hmm. the time. So I would actually ride my bike from Compton all the way to South Central Los Angeles to a park where they had a swimming team. How long did it take you? 50 minutes? Uh, it was it was a long time. It was at least hour and a half or wow. so each way. Well, ooh, wow. Each way. And so I would do that. You I know, am that type of cyclist now. Yeah. <laughs> imagine doing that. You know, I'm in my teens. And it's one thing riding a bike through the, you know, to practice and then mm-hmm. practice tire and then happen yeah. to ride it back but it's another thing when you're riding it and you're riding it through different gang territories yeah. and so yeah. that whole level of adrenaline you know right there driving you know riding from compton to south central south central back to compton you know Did you and avoid shootouts uh you know i got chased you know at times and and uh you know that's pretty much it i never got shot at you know as relates to that part yeah there was other times where there was some scary situations, yeah. you know. Did but you have to like be mindful, like what clothes you were wearing? Absolutely, when, yeah. What'd you absolutely. Wear? Uh, in terms of colors, yeah. My neighborhood was blue. Yeah. So then you like change as you like bike out of your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> you have yeah. Shirts. So so for me, for, so for me, if I knew I was going to be going in different territory, I just wear a neutral color. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Where I wouldn't have to change out. Where yeah. you don't really know. You know, you don't really know what, you know, but you, people would inquire what yeah. set you from mm. and stuff like that. So, you know, that puts you in certain kind of positions, you know, and that could be scary again as a teenager because I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, you know, I want to be gang affiliated. Yeah. Right. So everything was a survival mode. But once I got snatched out of that and kind of thrust in the world of, of training and, mm-hmm. and things like that, I just, my whole mindset just changed yeah. you know I was like in a whole different different world and just totally yeah. removed from that whole life that at that time I didn't think uh even existed yeah. and did you get snatched via school or did you have some other outside influence so so I mentioned earlier um that the uh person that uh pulled me out was uh Elger's name was Elger's Broussard Jr mm. and he was a pastor and a former athlete and uh, he, you know, I didn't have my father around, mm-hmm. so he became like a father figure to me. And he grabbed me, you know, out of the streets of, of Watts and, you know, just had me preoccupied with sports-related stuff and got me, you know, access to music stuff mm-hmm. where I could start fiddling around with music. Ooh, future you know. music person. We've talked about this before on our podcast. Yeah, so, you know. dreams. Yeah, so... Um, I did that, and that's when I, you know, he introduced, you know, the possibility of training for the Olympics. And so um, I learned a lot of things about training, um, uh, then discipline. Um, Again, I got to compete, you know, in the opening of the opening ceremony of the Olympic Stadium in L.A. Uh, That's where I really started getting involved in the community, Um, uh, just doing volunteer work. Uh, it back in my neighborhood. Um, that's that was my whole introduction via sports and music back into my community in terms of what community service meant. You know, so 
So when did you start like really focusing on music then? Um, I w- again, I would say consciously in terms of I want to pursue music yeah. because music was always around me. Yeah, I was a kid yeah. in the neighborhood that when people wanted to get uh, they hand uh, you the music, they they be like, <laughs> you know, Dave has the you know the the music. I had all the cassettes, tapes, and and all that kind of stuff. And especially when uh, the double cassette uh, tape players were, where you can re- you know record. I would hook multiple ones up and record stuff and and was doing mixtapes before I even got on turntables for people's parties, for people's uh, skating parties and all that kind of stuff. So music was always integrated in Mm -hmm. what I was doing, but consciously was probably about the age of 17 when Mm -hmm. I really started getting into, okay, I'm going to DJ. And that's where the hip hop really, you know, when I saw for the first time a DJ mm-hmm. and what he did for a crowd. Cause prior to that, when you said DJ, you thought about radio job. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You didn't think about turntables. You just thought about the person mm-hmm. on the radio. But mm-hmm. when I actually saw hip hop DJ with turntables, I was like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And so I just focused, you know, between that and, and sports. That was my thing, yeah. music and sports. So I'm curious, you know, you had an ama- I wish I had such an enriched track at the age of 17. You know, I was just trying to get emancipated from my family at that mm-hmm. time. And so you had both sports and music happening at the same time. But, you know, you dealt with a lot with the whole sports side. What happened that shifted you from doing both those things and then into just focusing on music? Ooh, that's a loaded question. So um, I was training, and as I was talking before, my focus was I was going to compete in the 84 Olympics. Mm. And unfortunately, at three months before, I had a really bad uh, hernia operation, and it just took me totally out of competition. And so it was kind of like... What else did I have? What other option mm-hmm. did I have? Yeah. Because I couldn't, I missed that opportunity. And so in my mind, I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have four years that I'm going to have to wait if I'm going to go, you know, uh, compete on the next Olympics. So music was the, my main thing. It was like that was my, uh, music was both something I loved doing, but it also was something that helped me cope through uh, just a lot of things in my life as a child, you yeah. know, um, uh, there's so many layers to to my life. I'm I'm kind of giving you the, I'm kind of giving you the. Uh, we got time. The outline <laughs> of it, but uh, I actually, when I was 17, I actually uh, was got married at 17. Whoa! At 17. At 17. Dang. That was I had my first my first uh, child, my first son at at 17, and so uh, you know well, you I wanted to catch athlete and a DJ. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, that's yeah, that's what some of them was saying. Uh, but for me, you know, um, you know, I, I wanted to do the right thing. You know, um, it wasn't planned. It wasn't a planned situation. It wasn't even a a planned relationship. Really, oh, it was. Mm. Uh, it was just one of those. So first comes baby, then marriage. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, um, and so you know. You know, again, growing up without a father, you know, I didn't want to be in a position where my my son or my child 
right. period would have to question, you know, where's my dad and why is my dad not around? So in trying to do the right thing, you know, I took that leap um, and um, it, it, it didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to <laughs> turn out. So. Because again, it wasn't something that I, I wanted at the time, uh, but I felt like I was, I was obligated mm-hmm. to, to do so. Um, and so uh, long story short, that, that relationship, I, I got you know three kids out of that, that situation. Mm. That's uh, my first three kids. And um, how many now? I have six. All right. Yeah, six kids, four boys, and okay. and and uh, two girls. You're a machine. Uh, um, yeah, amazing. Well, I'm retired in that area <laughs> right now. Uh, Whatever. <laughs> who is it? Charleston Headston. Who's the one guy who's like had a kid at seventy? What? There's an actor. Yeah, there's an yeah, actor. I, I yeah, I can't remember who it is, but yeah, he's like Moses. You know, yeah. something like that. <laughs> you know, but I mean, the great thing, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a true believer that, that God, uh, you know, you might have plans uh, a certain way, but he has bigger plans. And so the best thing that came out of that situation was my kids. Right. You know, and so, I, you know, I have no, no regrets at all yeah. about that. And, um, but yeah, you know, I, you know, I was married, and and you know, uh, in living in a situation at that time, um, which was uh, a church, um, what was I would say living in common. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the pastor that I mentioned earlier had had an idea in his mind that uh, because most majority of the people in our church were from low-income mm-hmm. families. He had this idea that if you pulled your resources together as black people and start helping, you know, build the things that people are talking about now in terms of networking and mm-hmm. building, you black know, Wall equity Street. and mm-hmm. all those kind of things. He Hallelujah. was, he was uh, implementing those things back in the 80s with, with us under the umbrella of our church. So we had athletic uh, center, we had training facility, we had, you know, uh, uh, you might not like this, but we had a meat market. (laughs) (laughs) Might be, uh, but... uh, uh, I'll judge very quietly. Right, right. We had uh, (laughs) skating ring, uh, all those things, and we took a lot of our resources and invested it in the community. Mm -hmm. We went back to Watts in the the local park there and refurbished the gym, put on basketball tournaments, all those things. We did uh, calisthenic tours around the local high schools and middle schools, kind of showing them alternatives to the other stuff, the craziness on the streets and stuff. So we're doing that. um, And this was all... Uh, also, we would do every summer. I got a chance to work and play in the uh, NBA Summer Pro mm-hmm. uh, Pro Am in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. Uh, that's when I got introduced to the NBA and got a, a chance to both compete and uh, meet a lot of NBA players. That later, you know, compete, compete. Yeah, yeah. I actually played. I actually played basketball. What? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. So, yeah. So, so, so. You don't the know church, none of these names. So, so the, so the I can ch- learn. <laughs> so, so the, so the church structured. We end up having a school. So 
I got snatched out of public school and put in this school. Oh, I thought you were talking about basketball school. I was like, yeah. they have them? No, no. So, no. So, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> so with that, he had developed a, uh, trained a team. So when we would um, be at the summer pro-am, yeah. we would play in the free agent division. Yeah. And so I got a chance to play with like Dominique Wilkins wow. and, and a lot of Spud Webb. He's, he's good. All these people. Yeah, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> as a kid, Terry Porter, <gasps> Jerome Kersey. That's where I first met. Yeah, that's where I first met. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's where I first met Jerome and, and Terry. Uh, Jerome used to have, uh, have me uh, uh, watch his Walkman <laughs> while he was playing when I was doing, because in between, they had two divisions. So they had a uh, they had a pro division. They had a free agent division. So whenever I would keep statistics for the pro division, mm-hmm. but I got to play in the free agent division. Okay. And so when I was doing statistics, Jerome and them would come, hey, man, you watch my, uh, my Walkman while I play. You know, and, <laughs> you know, so it, it, was, it was interesting as a kid, yeah. Yeah, as a young kid, uh, growing into a young, you know, adulthood, you know, being able to have those different experiences that I never thought that I would have because, you know, growing up in Watts, if you made it to 21, if you made it to 20, mm-hmm. you was, you know, that was a success. So to be able to get exposed to that. Now, jumping a little forward and, and answering your question in terms of how I started to get focused on music, uh, a bit more was uh, in they had a, 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 a annual event here in Oregon called the Cascade Runoffs. Mm, don't know it. It's like a, it is was it still like happening. A, uh, I don't think it is yeah. anymore. But it was the equivalent like the like they would do the hood the coast here. Yeah. Hood. Oh, but it okay. was a, a I think it was a ten k uh, event that mm-hmm. was real okay. popular. At Let's the do time. that, Greg. <laughs> so it was. <laughs> It Come was, on, <laughs> me and you, yeah. your neighborhood black friend right. is doing a 10K. Yeah. Wow. So they, on. 1K is too much. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they you know, had that up here. And so uh, Elders got the idea, well, why don't we go and, and compete? <laughs> That's crazy. In, in that from L.A., come up mm-hmm. here. Because in, in L.A., we had... Um, we had competed in... You already like, beat everybody. The, we beat a lot of people <laughs> in Interesting. L.A. So, we came up here. Now, mind you, this is Oregon. This, like, for, what I just got to say about your yeah. pastor, this dude sounds like Dumbledore. Like, this <laughs> dude is mad. Like, I, it sounds like you were like, this church was Hogwarts, and just like literally everything there. So just huge love and, and, and uh, appreciation to, was it Pastor Eldridge? Well. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> well. Oh, uh, what? Well. The uh-oh. story turns. Oh, oh, oh no. Scandal. Scandal. Well, well. Uh, oh, well, no. Well, I, I have to say that, you know. Uh, oh, damn. Yes, if, if you look at Oregon history and you bring up that name, that's not going to give you the, the, the goosebumps and feelings that you, you just oh, expressed. No. Oh, my. Uh, the tea. Yeah. And so. Holy shit. My introduction to Oregon was, was very, uh, very traumatic. Oh no! Very traumatic because what I Come came on, up here. Yeah, when I came up here, you know, I came with the intention of uh, training uh, for the Skyscape runoffs, and then uh, next thing I know, I'm in a, a, a national uh, uh, controversy. What? Yeah. Uh, he's just drawing this out for <laughs> yeah. so, so, so to make the long story short, so our church came up here. We're predominantly black. 
and we f- get a spot in Sandy, Oregon. Ooh. Which is That's still white. problematic space. <laughs> problematic. Yeah. And so imagine close to 100 people coming to a farm <gasps> in Sandy, Oregon, and you're predominantly black. Think that's going to raise some red flags. Right. Yeah. So next thing you know, we set up tents out there training, and the media shows up, <gasps> which is no problem. No problem, because we used to be in, in uh. the media. And they come and inquire what's going on. And, you know, our uh, PR person at the time told them, hey, we had to train for the Cascade runoffs and mm-hmm. figured while we're up here, look at some property and possibly do some, you know, farming and all this kind of stuff. So later that, that evening, news comes on, channel Coin 6 comes on, and they splice the screen, and there's a woman by the name Rosh, uh, from a group called the Roshanish Piram. Oh, oh yeah, yes. the Rajneeshis. Oh, my favorite. The they, so, yeah, they splashed the Rajneesh This is happening at the same up. exact time. Yeah. So, oh, oh, yes. They put the Rajneesh up there, and we, then they put our publicist up there and said, to, apparently she said some similar things. Yeah. Oh, so, so we, you were going to come and buy property like they we, did is what we they gotta, thought? Yeah, we got to so, pause for our listeners yeah. and explain the Rajneeshis, because not everyone's going to know. There's a Netflix documentary be- now. Yeah, watch on Netflix. Probably the best Oregon story. And a bad way. And so there was this uh, Indian enlightened guru who came to Portland or came to Oregon, actually Portland, yeah, and started a cult and got all of these middle class and people from all economic backgrounds, but a lot of middle class people who sold all their possessions, donated it to this man. He created a cult that then try to take over an entire town in Oregon yeah. and like the FBI and the they feds got some people. They po- yeah, it was the only case of domestic biological warfare that happened in uh, this in, in the United States. And so like a lot of stuff happened. They were like moving, busing in houseless folks to make them voters to like take over this town. Wow. They renamed the town from Antelope, Oregon to Ragnish Param. And so anyways, that's the backstory. So wow. this was in the media and you're crew was being associated with this absolutely insane situation. Right. So immediately <laughs> there was a um, a media just fire started. Like here's another one of these groups coming up here. We had no... I didn't even know as yeah. much as you are saying right now yeah. about it. White I just be knew crazy. That, that we were associated <laughs> with it and then kind of all hell broke loose because mm-hmm. we had sponsors and we, again, we are associated with They bombed with a building. Mm-hmm. NBA yeah. and all this stuff and so people are getting this news down in LA that, hey, what's this thing? You know, <gasps> that y'all, we seen it on the news oh and, and all this kind of stuff that what did y'all, you know, what are y'all doing? And... And it was like just that association started just this whole craziness. So uh, my life totally changed that day. <gasps> and so uh, thanks to fucking lot, Oregon. Yeah. And so oh, uh, long story short, because again, it's a it's a it's a lot to it. They have, people have to get the book. The book uh, I wrote a book, The Man Behind the Music. Oh wow! Uh, you can get it digitally on Amazon, yeah. but uh, it'll give a little more detail about about kind of the transition. So, long story short, um, it went from that to a very 
multiple moves back and forth from LA because now we had to go and try to put out fires of all the mm-hmm. stuff that's going on. People are backing out, sponsors are backing <gasps> out. Wow. No. Yeah. They think it's like a cult or something? Absolutely. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And so now everything that we were doing was put in the context of a cult. No. You know, us living together. Right. Us doing these oh, things. Shit. Bombing had happened and in the seventies. See, and I was just thinking when he was first telling the story about like move. If Brown Hope should be a church instead of a nonprofit. <laughs> right. right. So <laughs> now so, he's ruined that whole idea for me. <laughs> yeah. So all that happened. And, you know, long story short, there was an incident that happened here in, in Oregon uh while we were dealing with all that. That madness where uh, one of the kids in the church who happened to be uh, Eldridge's daughter uh, died. What? And, yeah, uh, she died. In Oregon? Yeah. And... um, On the farm? Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, it was, you know, it hit the media super crazy uh, that, you know, this was systematic. Uh, killing of kids or beating of kids uh, and all this kind of stuff and it's a part of the cult yeah. thing and he had his daughter murdered by one of the members and, and all this stuff so all this Is crazy that no okay. not like that <laughs> Not but there was no, not like yeah. that but there was some, oh. some, some bad decisions that happened yeah. that resulted in that Wow, uh, and and so there were members of the church that got uh, sentenced and and uh, con- oh my god um, had to do time in what, in what Oregon. Prison. What happened? Yeah, how did Oregon. she how did she die? <laughs> did, we honestly, the topic honestly, honestly, <laughs> honestly the one I, off topic no, no, it's not <laughs> off topic. Is is just that for me, uh, I wasn't there. Oh yeah, so you, you see don't what I mean? Wanna, yeah. I wasn't there mm-hmm. and I know with the 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 courts were saying that it was neglect. Mm-hmm. It was neglect and for me it was like okay, there was enough information where some things could have got handled differently. Yeah. You know, um but at the end of the day she's no longer here. Right. And so some people had to uh deal with the consequences mm-hmm. of that. Uh he Eldridge actually got indicted. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, they were putting it under the guise that he was the telling people of, yeah. to, mm-hmm. you know, harm kids like that. And so um, it was on Oprah. He ended up being on Oprah. Was he convicted? Was no, he, no. So oh. interviewed on Oprah? Yeah, he was interviewed oh on Oprah. This is a, there yeah, needs to be a Netflix was, story on this. Oh. <laughs> So it's yeah, coming. so it's 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 crazy. Uh, so what what happened to her? Like, was she was it a medical issue? Was she starved? Well, it was a whole bunch of layers, man. That again, I don't know because I wasn't there. Right. Uh, just in general, that it was neglect that yeah. led to her passing away, and there was some just mishandling of kids. This period, and this is and what made you want to move to Oregon. No, I was already here. Oh, so you see, I mean, you just so stayed? I was already here because I was transitioning back and forth, you uh-huh. know, between, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so when that happened, when she she uh, passed away, all the kids were up here, and so mm-hmm. all the was kids she like got, your age? No, no, she was a kid, kid. Like uh, Dana might have been seven. Mm-hmm. Six, seven, I mean, okay. seven, somewhere around seven to eight, maybe. 
Um, but um, when that happened, mm. all the kids got taken. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah, all the guy, yeah. the kids. I guess there was like a lot of farming equipment around and stuff like that. Uh, nah, no, 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 no. So all the kids got taken and put, you know, CSD, wow. all that kind of stuff. And so that was a whole thing. My kids were taken. My my uh, oh my, my young kids were taken. Mm. Um, so there was a whole transition of trying to get. My kids right. back. All of us, all of those at the time, mm. dealing with that plus the media fury, you know, that was going on. Uh, Eldridge Woods being, you know, indicted, and and that was happening all wow. at the same time. So there was just pressure cooker mm. happening at that time for me, and so you know, and I'm dealing with as a young man dealing with okay. I'm a young man. I grew up in mm. this situation. Once I got taken off the streets, this is all I know. Right. This is all I know. I've never lived on my own. I never, you know, had to do anything in terms of work because all my work was inside of the church. Right. You know, yeah. I did carpentry, constructions. I did all. I learned all yeah. these skills. You know, in this place where. I had yeah. a job. All my stuff was being taken care of. So. And yeah. you were now living in a state that literally destroyed your life. So yeah. So now here I am, you know, uh, as that process was going, uh, look up and Eldridge is found dead. What? <gasps> He's found dead at the farm. Whoa. So now here's a church that was clinging on, trying to say, no. okay, we're going to go through this process. He's going to be exonerated. You know, we're yeah. going to get the truth out. Then he he passes away, so whole church just randomly or yeah, still don't know. They yeah. said that it was diabetic related. Oh okay, that's what they said. I don't know you there. to what degree. Yeah. I wasn't there, so uh, it was just strange. It was just strange. Wow, this is, is literally like niche level shit. Yeah, it <laughs> wow. was. Uh, it was very strange, and so. Uh, Speeding up a little, uh, I end up being homeless. Wow. Yeah, I end up being homeless. And in Portland or what in happened San to the farm? Oh, no, in, in Portland. In, in, Didn't okay. the church own the farm? I don't know. But now I they don't, don't have the structure, the leadership. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. are so indicted. It was just people Kids yeah. are taken. To, you know, and so I was, I was uh, homeless uh, at the time. Um, my mom was, uh, she was one of the, the church members that got indicted and, and no. she's in prison. My, my brother Still? had a younger, bro- no, okay. uh, had a younger brother, who, uh, uh, who, you know, again, he was put in foster care. So here I am homeless, don't have my kids. I don't Life really know Oregon. Apart. I don't wow. really know Oregon, you know, that well. Mm-hmm. And I have all this pressure cause I'm associated with a situation, right. you know, that I had no control mm. over. And so, uh, yeah, I was, I had to make an interesting decision, man, because I knew, I knew at the time that I knew how to get money if I needed to. Yeah. You know, I could revert back to some stuff and, and get connected with some stuff. Cause yeah. you know, at the time too, you know, Oregon was, it was not a Watts. Yeah. You know, and, but you know, I, I hate to make that comparison because the part about your story that really just like is like a stone in my stomach, you know, the when you started talking about the farm, like that was a magical moment for me. We built this fucking country. 
And yet, when you look at the statistics around who owns farmland, who owns the land, it, it ain't us. Yeah. And so to me, it was magical to think, here you are in Oregon, a place that we weren't invited, allowed in, yeah. and y'all were about to build a beautiful black empowered community yeah. and to just see how that was taken away, you know? Yeah. It's like, fuck, like, you know, I, I didn't grow up in Watts, but you still had community there. You still had mm. folks organizing to make shit better. Y you had that. Yeah. In Oregon, that was all taken away when it could have been so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, you know, I had to rebuild my life. Yeah, you know, uh, really from scratch. So I had to, you know, got a job. I was working three yeah. jobs. I was working McDonald's and yeah. Camelot Music and Precision Cast Parts. I probably was averaging wow. about two hours of sleep, you know, a day, um, you know, and you know, I in '92, um, I finally uh, connected with. Um, an organization, Campfire Boys and Girls, mm, yeah. and um, started a gang prevention program. And that's mm. how I got started my introduction into the Portland community. Mm. Um, I started a gang prevention program and started developing that. But even when I initially started that, I had to I, I basically, in a way, hide my identity in my association Ooh. because, you know, my mom, of who my right. mom was. It's in the news. Uh, it's in the news. And, you know, if I put anything, you know, that could possibly um, let people know I was associated with the group, mm. then, you know, because when initially when I was trying to get jobs, um, if I put anything associated with that group, well, mm. what school you go to? Right. I said, watch, watch Christian Center. Mm -hmm. Oh, you must have been from that oh, group. No. Then mysteriously, I you know I couldn't get jobs. Right. I couldn't get a McDonald's job. Wow. And Shit. so, uh, so uh, basically, I had disguise. And so, uh, once I started my gang prevention program, now mind you, I'm on a, I'm not at doing athletics anymore. I'm only association with music at that time was the mechanism, the calming mechanism of being listening to music, mm -hmm. but pursuing music non-existent, you know, at that point, because I'm in survival mode. And so uh, what I did when I started the gang prevention program, one of the things I used was uh, after school parties. And I would do throw these dances at Whitaker Middle School for kids that got good grades and, and uh, got good reports from their teachers. And that's how I started getting known musically in Portland. For wow. DJing, and uh, it led from that to one of the kids. Uh, I think their auntie was a promoter, local promoter, and uh, asked me would I uh, would I be interested in DJing a concert? Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm like, man, what a concert from DJing after school programs to a concert. And then my first opening was for Run DMC at Naughty by Nature oh my God. at the Rosalind at the Rosalind wow. Theater. Wow. And so uh, between that and uh, just the work I was doing in the community allowed me to kind of get reestablished as a man, <laughs> you know, learn because I'm, I'm learning how to be a man through trauma. Right. Which was crazy. I had no mentors. I had no, no men in my life that can, hey, this is, 
Eldridge was the last yeah. male that I had had. And there was craziness, you know, that stuff that was going on that I will find out later mm-hmm. that added it to the craziness of, of the, the shadow of the cult situation. Um, but so at the time... you feel like there was a cult? In some ways, yeah. Mm. But yeah. I didn't feel like that when you were in it. When I was in it, mm-hmm. it didn't... It, Reminds it, me it of was like family. It was like family. Because that's all I, all I knew. For me, it was like anything other than having to survive in the streets of Watts and have to worry about getting shot mm-hmm. or dead was like, I can deal with whatever. Mm-hmm. With whatever. But being in the group, um, as you know, again, there were some things that I felt were great about it but then as I got older and started seeing some other things it was some other things mm. that were very questionable mm. and um, but again you know looking in the bigger picture of things would I be able to do the work that I do today the way that I do it had I not gone through every single one of those experiences mm-hmm. you know so so I'm curious like you're music influence it was like super positive um and uh like your trajectory in music has been really positive but it was coinciding with a time in hip-hop that was at least seen outwardly as partly negative with the rise of like gangster rap and stuff so how did you square one like your faith and uh but also music was changing i assume you were like having to DJ some of this music, right? Like, and then, you know, open for these people, but, like, you were at the same time doing gang prevention work. So did that yeah. seem like a conflict at all? or, or? No, no. Uh, because I always, even before hip-hop uh, was heavily on the scene, even as a young kid, I always looked at music as that was the voice of what was happening in our mm. society. It has always been it's to this day. Light. It's not the cause. Yeah. It's, it's not the cause. Yeah. Right. It's it's the thing that says here's if you want. And I always say even to this day, if you want to know what's going on in our community or how bad it it, it even mm. is, listen to the music. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so for me to play it, was it you know uh, even to this day, mm-hmm. there's music that I played that it's not my. I don't condone behaviors yeah, or, right. or any yeah. of those things, but the reality is that yeah. that's what's real. And that's what's good. real where people are. And so yeah. if you and want I, the music... I love that you say that because one of the things that me and Greg deal with like as activists, folks are like, well, let's not talk about race. You talk about race, then it's an issue. But like, same thing with hip-hop. Like, you can't just pretend that these things ain't real. They're yeah. real. They're real. Yeah. So if you want to change the music, for me, it's always been, if you want to change the music, change the issues in, in, the, in the community. Because then you don't have to talk about that Ooh. no more. Right. Like, yeah, if you don't like what you're hearing here, then change it. I How think come it, no one's ever said that to me before? Like, I, that is the most succinct, powerful, like, counterpoint I've ever heard. Like, I want to go on Tucker Carlson's show, get me on Fox News. <laughs> like, right, that was right. dope. It, yeah. It's so interesting also, like, the different ways that we look at entertainment. Like, I remember, like, when I was a kid and had an iPod and, like, we had the headphones that weren't as good as today's. And my dad, like, was like, Greg, turn that off for a second. I can tell that a lot of what you're listening to is a bunch of curse words and stuff, right? Like, yeah. you can't listen to this. And I was like, Dad, you let me watch R-rated movies. 
why is this different? Because this is entertainment, right? Like, so, like, I, like, why is it, like, the same parents that let kids play Call of Duty or Warzone or Fortnite all night, right? If they walk into the room and hear really, like, vulgar music and stuff or, like, turn that off, but other forms of entertainment we allow. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that really only, the only real explanation for that is race. Yeah. Well, I, I think it could be some of that, mafia. but I think it, it, it also it also is that uh, it's 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 finances, mm-hmm. it's financial. Mm. Yeah, but tied to, I mean? tied to race. So you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. so when I say that, it's it's one of those things that mixed messages always are sent around it. So, like say with the one of my issues mm-hmm. with with the. Uh, the hip hop culture as relates to music mm-hmm. is being clear about the intent, being clear about the intent. If we're going to listen or create music with the intent of saying, this is what's real and we're painting a picture of what this is. I'm like, fine, there's parameters around that. And saying, okay, this is, What's going on in our community? But when you deal with the consequences of it, then the message changed. Because then now it's, no, why are you dealing with me if I'm dealing with, if I'm saying these things, but it's just entertainment? No, which is it? Is it entertainment Mm. or is it real life? Mm. So I'm fine with either one. If it's entertainment, then as a parent even, I could say, okay, well, just like with there's R-rated movies, mm-hmm. there's you know X-rated or explicit lyrics. I can decide as a parent what I want my kid right. to be exposed to, mm-hmm. even if it's entertainment. <clears throat> right. You yeah. See what I mean, for sure. The problem is, is you have the mixed message. You got people that are creating, and I'm cool with creating, but yeah. when it's convenient, you want to say it's entertainment. When you want to be, oh, dog, this is real. This is my real life, yeah. and you deal with the consequences mm-hmm. of it. Then now you know you don't want to own it. So I'm saying, own it. Well, own it, it either way. Case so by co- case basis too. I mean? I mean, for some people they're reflecting yeah. something. For some people they're faking it. For yeah. some people they lived it. Right? Yeah. Like it can be different depending yeah. on the artist. Well, too. I love that we're talking about this because it reminds me of a great argument that Greg and I had a few guests ago about the power of music and the ability to hold folks who perform music accountable. So just, just yeah. saying that happened. Yeah. And I tell, I tell people <laughs> all the time, uh, uh, especially like it's some conversations I've had to had with schools mm-hmm. when, you know, I would go DJ, even if I'm playing the clean edits mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of music, they'd be like, oh, don't play that. It's going to make the kids mm. do these things. You mm-hmm. know, they're going to make them dance a particular way, bend yeah. over and, 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 and pop it or whatever. And, and I would tell the, the staff, I said, it's not the music that's making them do that. Mm-hmm. I said, that's already in them. The music is the trigger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not the cause. It's a trigger. So whatever is in you, when a trigger comes, that's what's going to come out of you. Mm-hmm. So I can go play the same exact song in a different school and you won't get that reaction. Mm-hmm. So why is it that I play the same exact song here and play it over here and get two different reactions. Mm-hmm. It's the same lyrics. Mm-hmm. It's the same song. Two different experiences. Mm. It's the same reason why some you could play a, a, a slow song for one person and it brings them to tears. 
Another one, you could play the same slow song and it makes them feel love. You a slow and, song and, person, you Greg? See what I mean, it depends on their experience. <laughs> nah. And that song will trigger whatever that person's experienced. That's why you can go. I've been at some shows where I can play some some gangster some gangster type stuff, mm-hmm. and next thing you know, people are popping off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go to another venue, play the same exact song, right. and they're yeah <laughs> crazy. No incidents at all. So yeah. it made me think. Okay, well, it's not hip hop music. Right. It's not hip hop music. Is that hip hop music is ex- is exposing the issues that's going on? Mm-hmm. So when you get in a room, and people have certain triggers, certain music is going to trigger people. So do you kill the music? Does that stop it? Mm-hmm. No. No, because I've been in a situation where I'm playing slow jams and people got in a fight. Slow jams. Mm-hmm. Because that slow jam triggered a dude that just broke up with his girl. Yeah. And they weren't talking about nothing but love. So, uh-huh. it's, it's, again, it's really getting people to understand that, you know, music is just a message. Mm-hmm. We got real issues going on in our, in our community until we start really a- addressing those things. The music is not going to change. Right. That's powerful. Um, little pop culture reference uh i'm digging into netflix right now you know it's covid so we all going through netflix and there's this show i'm watching right now that i love so much it's called on my block and it's actually based in socal they live in free ridge and you know spoiler alert one of the kids gets shot in a shootout huge spoiler then, alert oh my god I'm not, you're told me. You ruined it. <laughs> but he, he survives i'm not telling you i don't know the worst spoiler. <laughs> i didn't even tell you that i'm not telling you the really bad thing that happened right. it happened at a quince so that's all that i'm not gonna oh tell you but it's bad you gotta watch the show the show is amazing it's life-changing for me he survives Following that season where the, the Kinsei shootout happens, there's a truce between the two gangs. And then this kid, because he's depressed because of, you know, almost dying and other stuff and not spoiling. And one of the gang members from the hood that he's in brings him to a party. And he starts like a girl kisses him. He gets drunk. So he finally feels like better. He starts rapping. And he mm. does this little line at the very end of that rap. He says, fuck the other gang. Boom. That one moment caused the end of the truce. And they literally leave the party at that moment to go find, I think they were called uh, Doris or something like that. Find those gang members and shoot them. Yeah. That yeah. seems yeah. like a lot of spoilers, but... <laughs> Word, <laughs> words are power. Spoil Word, it, there's yeah. a lot more happens. in the show. You got to watch it. Yeah. It's amazing. Words carry power. And, and if anything, one of the things that I, I coach artists on that you know I, I do mentorship and coaching with mm-hmm. is uh, not censoring them but it's really about making them aware of what power are you putting out there mm. is your power to, you, the words you're using is it to inform or is it to incite mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. to cause a reaction and we have a lot of creatives that are making great music but it's reactive and not proactive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know what I mean and so again we living in a society now where you know it's not being promoted to be accountable to your words. Mm -hmm. So that's why you can say crazy stuff on IG and do crazy stuff and then you run into that person in real life and it's a real situation. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. 
Um, yeah. And especially like you as a public figure and stuff, I'm sure people will talk crazy to you and say something <laughs> like as if you're never going to see it and stuff. Yeah. And it's just wild what people are willing to say in people's yeah. mentions yeah. when they think someone is public or yeah. that they're shooting upwards. Yeah. Usually people don't really say nothing to me. They, they, yeah, you they have something nice. to say about me. It's usually through some back alleys or, you know, in some secret, you yeah. know. IG messages, yeah. but no one really, really comes at I, me to I my face. I have one personal, uh, one more personal question I want to ask, but then we got to talk about the Blazers. Um, you, you talked about how you had to be really hidden about your identity. Was there ever a crossover point where you could finally like share your story without dealing with the re- repercussions? Yeah, actually, it was when I when I started the the uh, gang prevention program because I went into. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the middle schools to get mm-hmm. program after school programs mm-hmm. and everything set up, and one of the uh, CSD workers were mm-hmm. were there. That Ooh. was my my brother's uh, oh wow caseworker, <gasps> and asked me what uh, what was I doing there, and I was like, no. you know, I'm starting an after yeah. school program. It got back as if I was starting Sorry, a new cult. I was starting. <laughs> no! I was recruiting, yeah. and so the supervisor for uh, Campfire Boys and Girls pulled me in the office and said, oh "Hey, you know, uh, we got word that you know you were, you know, someone said that you were recruiting and blah wow. blah blah. And were you a part of that group?" And I was like, "Yes, I was a kid that grew up in there." Mm-hmm. Well, why didn't you tell us? I said, "Because I probably would wouldn't have, have this yeah, job." You- Pulled me into the office. Yeah, I said <laughs> I wouldn't have had this job. I said and you would have, you would have, you would have looked at me for mm-hmm. whatever that. Even though I had nothing to do with any of the negative stuff that right. happened, you would have already, you know, uh, stereotyped me in yeah. that. that and plus, situation. that is and they agreed. experience. You know, yeah. gangs, cults, like come yeah, on. Yeah, and they agreed, and that was. Uh, to get their vote of confidence at the time and said, no, uh-huh. we, we look at the work that you've done and we have your back. Mm-hmm. That was the first time it was like, oh, so now I don't have to, you know, I don't have to hide, you right. know, uh, this situation. You're not going to lose your and, job Because I was this. never afraid to talk about it. Uh-huh. It was just that I was more afraid of the reaction yeah. that people wouldn't yeah. even take the time to have a conversation mm. with me uh, about it. And so I just built the program, you know, and was engaged in the community for many, many, many years. And it wasn't until uh, the mid, you know, 2000s that I actually wrote a book about my story because I had been doing so much work with kids that they didn't really know that part of my mm. story. And so when I would get asked by students like, hey, you don't understand, or they would make statements, oh, you don't really understand, mm. you know, about the stuff I go through and mm. the pressures. And I, and I was like, Hold I would drink. get offended for a <laughs> yeah. second. I'd be getting my feelings, be like, what do you, do you know? And then I had to stop and say, no, they don't know. Uh-huh. They don't know my story, and so when I, I wrote the book, for I'm like the that purpose, too. Y'all know the type of cicadas that I see, right, right, <laughs> right. And so being able to, you know, then share uh, some of that story with them to let them know that I understand what it feels like to be isolated, to feel like you have absolutely no hope and no support, mm-hmm. and being able to come out of that and be as successful as you want to be. Mm. And so that's been my mission, period, whether it's 
you know, I, I'm not really interested. Most people that really, really know me know me that I don't care about celebrity. I don't care about fame because I've I've seen, I've been at mm. certain levels and I see just the right information that changes in people's minds, changes their thoughts about you. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with you. So what do you believe about yourself? Mm. And what do you value about yourself? And so I use my platforms to, to give that message that you, know, you control your narrative and the most important person that uh, you need to be concerned about is you. Because once you are you in love with yourself and you value yourself, then it makes it that much more easier for you to share that and spread that to other people. So fast forward, I mean, I don't know how long we fast forward here, but uh, for those who don't already know, you are the official DJ of the Portland Trailblazers. Yes. So uh, for anybody who goes to a Portland Trailblazers game, they will see your name or hear your name at least yes. and uh, and hear you DJing and stuff. Mm -hmm. When did that relationship come about? Ooh. That, <laughs> of course, that's, it's a story. That, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. That, seed, that seed was planted like in 2000. I didn't become the, the, the DJ until 2008. No, uh, we got to skip some of that. So, and here's why I say about seeds. You know, I always say, again, when I coach, you know, people that I, 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 I coach, I always tell them about the value of how you deal with people because uh -huh. you never know how people are interconnected. Mm. Right, yeah, yeah, and So yeah. it doesn't matter if someone holds a title or not. It can be the janitor. Mm -hmm. That janitor, you know, a few years from now could be the president of something. And can be the very person that makes a decision about yeah. your life. I need life. to clean my bathroom. Well, that's why it's important <laughs> to keep I mean? your relationships too. Exactly, yeah. and so nurture them. Um, in the early two thousands, now by this time, I'm already known as a right. DJ, and I'm doing concerts and shows, and I'm doing radio mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And I get introduced uh, to uh, Larry Miller, who at the time was the president of Brand Jordan at mm. Nike and mm. I go out and do an event. He mm. and I connected really tight and became really good friends. And I would do, you know, Michael Jordan parties, all that stuff mm -hmm. for him. And so my old job. Yeah. And so no. in 2000, <laughs> 2008, he became the president of the Trailblazers. Wow. Organization. All right. So at that time was when uh, DJs were being introduced as a part of the in-game experience. Mm -hmm. And so I just asked him, I said, hey man, you know, mm -hmm. Miami has a DJ. Yeah. LA has a DJ. What's up? Some teams that are still it. doing the, and, yeah, the, the Oregon Yeah, thing. the Oregon. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was like, well, let's make it happen. And it was just that. Wow. It was that simple. So 08 <laughs> is, I mean, and ever since then, it's just been a match made in heaven. you just been. Oh, man. You get to see all the games. Man, man. It's, it's I mean, it's. It's a DJ's dream to right. be able to play in front of that many yeah. people, and on, with that level of of professionalism in terms of being associated not only just with the Trailblazer organization but with the NBA right. period, and being a selected few uh -huh. DJs that that uh, get a chance to be on that level. Uh -huh. So this is my 14th season. 
And uh, so, I mean, it's a blessing. It's a it's a blessing, man. So yeah. now you're a Trailblazers fan. Were you always a Trailblazers no. fan? No, I wasn't. I mean, oh, I'm from, no, I'm from I'm L.A. Hey, <laughs> I'm from L.A. I'm from Greg's LA, like, gotcha. Yeah, I'm gonna sit here and hey, lie to you. I'm a Trailblazers I'm fan. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna lie to you. No, I was at you know you from L.A. You L.A. And so. Um, Lakers, but by right? the time, oh, yeah, Lakers. Oh, yeah. Lakers. see, come on, give me credit. I knew the Clippers. So you thing. got to think that you know when I was in LA, when I worked in the uh, uh, pro am and play, yeah. I was around the Magics mm-hmm. and, yeah. and mm-hmm. all these people. That was James Worthy's and all that. So it was just in me. Uh, when I got to Oregon, finally, once I started building my own name. I started doing events for, uh, even before I became the Blazer DJ, I was doing events for uh, Damon Stoudemire, mm-hmm. you know, Rashid Wallace, and all these these players. So I got the chance to build with a lot of these guys personally. You know, mm-hmm. Brian Grant, who is a really right. good friend of mine to this day. Yeah. Uh, and so it was an to easy transition church. for me to be able to say, I'm here. I'm, 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 I'm a Blazer fan now because I was more of a fan of the people as opposed to the team. Now, the team-wise, when I got in as a Blazers DJ, then it was like... Then you bought your jerseys. Then it was like, <laughs> okay, you know. I, I can, It took a second. I think it took maybe a season, a couple of seasons for me to, to like, not, like, jump whenever we played the Lakers and right. Kobe was playing. And it was like... Oh, nah, wait a minute. I can't cheer for him. <laughs> that, you know what I mean? I can't cheer for him. But, again, we had the greatest fans, you know, oh my God, uh, in yes. the NBA. And so just getting embraced by the fans, I mean, and that experience, man, it's nothing. You know, I tell people, all my, my people I know that's still in L.A., that are Laker fans. And my, I, my, my sons, my older sons are Laker fans, diehard. Mm. And I tell them, hey, yeah, would you come to the game with me? But who me? paying the bills? <laughs> but I like, you come to the game with me, you can't wear no Laker, no, Laker not jersey. No, in Portland. Son, better, I was like, son, you can't come in and wear a Laker jersey with me. Yeah. <laughs> you can cheer under your breath all you want. <laughs> <laughs> so, nah, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, full Oregonian, man, and... um. Uh, full Oregonian and now you're repping and, the red. Yeah, <laughs> man. Red, man yeah. I, lo- I love the Blazer organization. And again, for for me, it's beyond just um, being in that position. It it just is what that position gives me in terms of leveraging to be an impact uh-huh. uh, in other people's lives. Right. Tell us. I'm more excited about that. Tell us more. Yeah. What are you doing? You know. So uh, you know, uh, man, it's I got a lot that I'm doing. So you know, I have a company called Leadertainment. It's mm. a, a personal and professional development. I love play on words. Leadertainment. Yeah, Leadertainment. Love it. And uh, it's a personal and professional development uh, company where I get a chance to work with people who want to do the things that I've done in terms. They want. They have talents or gifts, whether it's athletically or, you know, uh, music, in the end, music mm-hmm. entertainment or whatnot, uh, but they want to be impact players. They want to be people that use their talents and their platforms to make an impact. So my whole focus is taking them through processes, allow them to deal with their own issues mm-hmm. so it becomes a reflection. Their, their growth becomes a, ref, a reflection of the work that they do externally. And so uh, I'm doing a lot of that, and it's taking shape, you know, um, uh, whether it's working with a young group of uh, people who are in the uh, hip-hop community, a PDX Collective. Uh, I do a, 
I don't even call it mentoring anymore. You know, uh, it's coaching. Entertainment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just call it coaching, uh, mm. just coaching people through life, you know. Right. And uh, so when I'm not DJing, uh, you had a coach, man. You a Yoda. Like, yeah. you got to give yourself some credit. You are a Yoda. You got <laughs> Jedi level, like, wisdom and influence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but again, all those things, you know, I'm able to look at my life and all the things that people consider to be tragedy, mm -hmm. tragic things that have happened in my life from surviving a, a cult to being homeless, uh, even to dealing with, you know, health stuff like cancer and mm -hmm. almost, you know, being on my deathbed Wow, and being able to uh, keep a certain uh, hope and in, 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 outlook on life. All those things, again, I... I, again, I always say it without it sounding religious. Uh, I believe God sends you through and prepares you for things not for yourself. It's supposed to be to impact other people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't go through it, you don't know how to tell or coach other people on how to get through theirs. And so that's what I hope at the end of the day that my life is, is a, rep a representation of no matter what happens to me in life, that you always can uh, control your narrative, you know? And so Ooh. you choose the way how you want to see life and everything that comes at you. Chills. I have just a couple super rapid fire Blazers questions. Ooh, All right. here they come. It's not a test. <laughs> I'm just curious, right? You think we're okay. going to be good this year? <laughs> that is not a rapid fire question. Whoa. You know, I think we're going to be... That's a gotcha I question. Think, How dare no, you? No, you can say no. You can I say think, yes. I think it, we're going to be as good as we play hard together. Mm-hmm. So that could be a big range. That yeah. could be a big range because I think we've had teams, you know, I've seen them come and go in terms of the Blazers. Right. And we have talent. It's just a matter of, you know, getting the right chemistry together there and, and executing Mm -hmm. Executing, so you know, I have, I always have hopes that you know, uh, and I like that. I think we're gonna win the championship every year, and and and, <laughs> and I like that people count us out because I think when people count us out, we play better. That's true. I mean, uh, okay, this was also not a rapid fire, but last question that I have on the Blazers. We just had a media day for a lot of organizations, yes, and it was obviously... Yesterday. Oh, you were? Yeah. Yeah, so there was obviously uh, around the league a lot of controversy. Uh, people were being asked in every situation who's vaccinated and who's not. Oh. Um, so I'm just curious your thoughts on that. They, there was a report yesterday, or I think Neil O'Shea came out and said the Blazers organization was 100% vaccinated. Uh, so good job, Trailblazers. But uh, yeah. there are some teams where people are going to have to miss home games because they're not vaccinated. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think people eventually will all end up being vaccinated? And, do you, and then I guess... Lastly, uh, do you think there's a responsibility from our athletes to speak? You know, 90% of the league is vaccinated. We're hearing a lot from the 10%. Do you think that 90% should be as loud as the 10%? Rapid fire right. questions. Yeah. Get out well, of here. I, yeah, honestly, I think, I think just like I think with a lot of other decisions about that people make about their lives is – just own it, own your decision. Mm. And I respect people's decision. I might not agree with your decision, but I can respect it if you own it. The issue that we're dealing with right now is it's not really 
whether people should get vaccinated or not vaccinated. It's not really that issue. The issue is you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Meaning that you can't say, no, nah, I'm not going to get vaccinated. And I want all the and money. I want and all <laughs> the, I want you to pay me all. And I want you to, I want to have all the freedoms and not I really. I don't want to get tested. And I don't want to get this and this. <laughs> you can't do, that's just not realistic. Mm. You know? And, and so, again, even though I respect mm -hmm. a person's decisions, because you shouldn't make a decision to do anything just because someone said, you are you better or you have, but. Guess what? If I don't make a if I make a decision not to be vaccinated, just me, me personally, and I say, nah, I, you know, something's weird about it, or mm -hmm. I got some kind of conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Guess what? I have to equally be okay with them saying, okay, OG, we love you and everything, but mm -hmm. you can't play in the arena. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. I might not like it, I mean, it might suck, but I can't say, no, you need, still need to pay me. Mm -hmm. You still need to do all these things for me. And I think that's what it is. I mean, I, if you don't, don't. It's people that, you know, that I love and care about that's not vaccinated. And but, I say, guess what? I love you. I talk to you over Zoom, but you can't <laughs> come to the house. Were you required to? I was already vaccinated. I know, but like the whole organization, like to be in the arena and stuff. Well, that's like, well, because no. I think that's part of the tension is that the players, you know, 90 percent, which is better than a lot of professions like cops. Um, or maybe even nurses. Yeah. I mean, 90 percent is good, but the WNBA is 99 percent um, like. But a lot of the people who are making the show go on whether that be the DJs or the, you know, all the way up to the people who are bringing people drinks in the front row or the people sitting in the front row mm -hmm. or the people in the concessions and stuff, they have the requirement. Right, right. Again, again, I think, you know, I have no, no uh, one thing or the other in terms of, you know, you better. You know, I, right. I'm okay with getting vaccinated. Me too. And that was before even any of the mandates or whatever <laughs> things came out because it's like one one for one i'm at a higher risk just because of my cancer yeah. experience so i'm at a higher risk of catching anything so i want to make sure for myself and for my family for my kids i take all kinds of other shots i done had 14 surgeries over the last and you trust three the doctors years. then and so it's like <laughs> wait a minute I done been through 14 surgeries. I ain't say, okay, what's in that anesthesia? <laughs> and, and what's in that? And, and I ain't did none of that. Are you again. hooking me up to a 5G right, network? Right. You know, you know, waking there better up. be some horse pace in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cancer so, cure. Right. So it's like, if I'm not being detailed as, as, as detailed as that, then, you know, I'm not going, me, again, yeah, I, right. I'm not saying this with other people, but for me, I'm going to do the things that I feel, uh, will keep me protected and it's going to keep my family. And right. nothing is 100% guaranteed. Mm -hmm. When I went in for my cancer surgery, guess what? When I woke up blind wow. and in the loss, I, I didn't go in and say, okay, well, it's a risk of me waking up blind. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I've been through all kinds of surgeries, knee surgeries, back surgeries. I've mm -hmm. been through all kinds of stuff and everything was fine. That one time changed my entire life. Damn, am I go, not going to ever go to the hospital anymore <laughs> and say, oh, this one time, this very bad thing that yeah. happened to me mm -hmm. from, from some medical stuff, now I ain't going mm -hmm. no more. No, that happened. Right. I had to deal with that and I had to process that. And I think 
people need to take those things in accountability and just own it. Just own whatever side of it that you own, own it. Just so happens with the, the organization, you got to take responsibility if you want certain access. And thank, so, thank you, DJ OG. Uh, so unlike Greg, I actually have a real rapid fire <laughs> okay. question for you. Did you have fun on the podcast today? Absolutely. Woo. Absolutely. <laughs> Where nah. can people find your stuff? Oh, man. Um, you can find me on IG, uh, DJ O-G-O-N-E. You can, uh, everything DJ OG1 is djog1.com. Mm -hmm. You know, got a little bit of everything. Got an album out. Great. It's, it's, it's you know, doing great. And uh, uh, all the events that I do, community-wise or otherwise, you can find it there. All cool. Right. That's well, a wrap. Thanks for coming on. I Thank appreciate you. you guys for having me. Stay lovely, neighbors. DJ OG1 OMG <laughs> My god was What that was what that? you expected? I mean Definitely the, not. Yeah, I mean like I was like prepared to talk so much blazers. Yeah. I was prepared like and and even the way we started <laughs> like I was like okay, let's get through this personal background <laughs> stuff so I can talk about like his journey into music and stuff <laughs> like that of the like childhood part cuz I was like Yeah. I think I got like what was going on here. Obviously, you did at a moment too, where you were like, "This guy is like Dumbledore," <laughs> and then he's like, "Well," and then it just took a turn, and it's like mm. we are not cutting this. Mm -hmm. Like we gotta dig into this. So uh, for, for folks who don't know, me and Greg kind of have a pact. I do the the fuzzy, warm stuff, and then he'll do stuff like sports and hip hop and and law and politics. And so really, we both went into this thinking, okay, he is a DJ with the Trailblazers. This is Greg's interview. <laughs> <laughs> I got this one. This is my time to shine. Holy crap. Like, I need to see a therapist after hearing that story. And like what was so wild about it was there was so much that he didn't even say, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, I, th I think he, when it got to those points would say, you know, I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't there. And like, you know, he wasn't there. And so, you know, obviously as soon as the interview ended, I was like, <laughs> I wonder if any of the, this has to be like on the internet yeah. and producer Chris had found the obituary for the person who, uh, <sighs> the pastor, the, pastor yeah. um, the Dumbledore of this situation. Oh God. And I recant everything that I said in that interview. It led down a rabbit hole. <laughs> Before I get canceled, okay, the way that it was framed, because it was talked <laughs> <laughs> again. You, you were like, this is so good. Oregon took everything away from you. All because you were black. But even with like, they're talking about the daughter being murdered, he made it sound like they were being accused unfairly. So like... It took, like, until you, like, researched it and told me, like, actually, no, like, some shit went down. To me, it still felt like Oregon was really trying hard to, like, fuck up these innocent black people. Some shit definitely <laughs> went down. So can I Damn. read you a little bit about this group? Oh, God, I'm not ready. So okay. this is, I've read nothing, so this is going to be my initial reaction. Okay, so they are now known or, like, became known as the Ecclesia Athletic Association. So it's an organization founded by Eldridge Broussard, which is the pastor mm -hmm. that we heard about in 1975, with the stated mission of helping children escape the dangers of inner city Los Angeles oh God. through strict discipline and athletic training. 
Strict discipline. Right. Like uh, being stoned? So it, uh, yes. In 1987, the group moved from its headquarters in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles to Sandy, Oregon. The group sometimes attracted accusation that it was a cult, often from neighbors or the family of members inside the group. <laughs> but Broussard publicly denied the label, including in 1984 and 1988 appearances on the Oprah Winfrey show. So the pastor literally was on Oprah defending this thing. Like, it's a yeah. huge national story. Yeah. So the October... Has anyone ever been like, yeah, I made a cult. This oh, is a cult. Right, Go exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally a cult. Um, the October 1988 death of Eldridge's daughter, Dana Broussard, prompted the removal of the remaining 53 children in the organization's care... Why you got that many children on a farm? In an investigation in into the group. The investigation found that the children were subject to extreme fitness training and physical punishments, including floggings. Four staff members were convicted of manslaughter, while Broussard and seven others were charged with child slavery by the federal government. And he, of course, died Oof. before the trial, um, and the other seven pleaded guilty to lesser charges. Well... I remember this time a couple of episodes where we talked about <laughs> the corruption of sports <laughs> and why music is something that we have the power to critique. This is all a long game to win this <laughs> argument from seven episodes ago. Yo, the next <laughs> guest is going to be Jules, and we're going to make him listen to this interview. That is terrible. Right, um, and you know, and that happened. How did that happen in Oregon? Neither you or I never even heard of this before. Right, I went home and told my wife, and she's like, "What?" Like, yeah, and like I. She's from here too, right? So, yeah, and I've yeah. been doing the story like when I tell it, I've been telling the story in like the order that it was told to us. So yeah. like I start, <laughs> I start trying to lead people down to like, "This is great." He's Dumbledore and stuff, and then I hit him with the surprise that we got. Because if you just start with, "Did you know about this cult from way back?" And <laughs> Stuff like that. It's, it's like, no, nah, I didn't know about this. But if you convince them, pull them in first, yeah. then it's a real gotcha moment. So similar to what we were subjected to. Um, but Props it's to you, be DJ OJ1. Like, wow. The most interesting, like, like, and it's so funny because even before, like, I, like, read all of his website yeah. and stuff like that, none of this shit is on the website. Like, <laughs> granted, I didn't read the book and stuff like that, but, like, I was, like, prepared to ask about different parts of what he does. We didn't even get into a lot of his work in community now, yeah. you know, doing the good version of the Dumbledore, you know, like... <laughs> Uh, we didn't even really get into that because this story was just, like, so explosive. Yeah. Um, just death. And uh, there, one of the um, articles I read that was from back then uh, was the prosecutor in the case said it was the largest child slavery ring in the history of the United States. What? Yeah. I, I, I don't know how to be surprised. I feel like... 53 slavery is was a, probably bigger is a big number <laughs> i know right i know so 53 is a big number but i feel like really that would be bigger than any other sl child slavery uh, ring they're, they're clearly not counting slavery uh, <laughs> right? so like, yeah uh, but not counting but slavery. No, yeah, that was an actual yeah quote i mean i don't know it was also in the 80s maybe there's been a lot of child slavery since okay then. But uh, yeah. maybe they've been surpassed in the Guinness book of world records but i think that how do we not know this 
you know, I think part of it might be that there is some like racism involved in it. Uh And so it's sort of like not a fun story to tell on either side of the story, I think, in part. And then it seems like this group, unlike many groups that Mm. we like assign to being cults and stuff, like was not ever after any sort of spotlight or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And so maybe they... I mean, I say that after the guy was on the Oprah show, but it seems like he was the charismatic charismatic leader. Yeah, he was on Oprah. But he was the charismatic leader, and then he died. So maybe, like, it wasn't, like, something where it's, like, the nation of Islam. No, that seems like it would be an even bigger deal. Because most big yeah, but they didn't have anybody leaders to die carry and then they become the like yeah, I mean yeah. it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make I'm sense just at all. Trying to throw shit at the wall of maybe I want why, answers. But like I was the fucking like director of a nonprofit that taught the history of Oregon, and I never knew this story. And like we just the, all of Oregon not too long ago, you know, was. Uh, watch that documentary on the Rajneeshis yeah. and stuff, and this was going on at the same Netflix, time. Netflix, you got your sequel right here. Holy shit! <laughs> yes, I've been like literally. I think I had a dream about this, but like DJ OG One needs to make that money. It would be a great documentary. We I need think. to convince him that he needs to go sell the rights to Netflix. Let's sell the rights. We'll start it from the basis of our podcast story. That'll be the underlying The title of the documentary will be, I wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems like a lot of the kids were not there for, I mean, like, it, nothing that I read. I hope they weren't. Well, yeah, nothing that uh, I read indicates that 53, you know, of these children were all being, abused and stuff it, it did seem like it was very strict. did you find anything about the daughter because like yes. child abuse is terrible but of all the kids that were killed it was the cult leader's daughter like so can i read you the story oh god i'm not ready i'm closing my eyes okay members of the church began returning to the sandy property um uh neighbors reported not hearing any of the children or even seeing lights on in the house except for very light at night uh, 62 people ranging in age from 1 to 37 were living in the four-bedroom house, which had no toilets or refrigerator and no food except a few vegetables. On October 14th, four members of the church brought the body of Dana Roussard, the eight-year-old daughter, and the second oldest of his five children to the Sandy Fire Station. The four were subsequently arrested and charged with manslaughter. Um, in Eldridge, the dad was in Los Angeles at the time, so it was other people that did it. So while investigating the death, child welfare officials learned that 42 of the 53 children and all, all of those who were older than five were subjected to beatings of at least 100 lashes and sometimes as many as 800 lashes in electrical cord and chains. Uh, and a majority of those were scarred from punishments and malnourishment. Uh, and the children also had to watch others get punished. So in an affidavit, officials described a cruel and terrifying experience giving rise to mental injury. Uh, Going forward a bit, uh, uh, the daughter was... uh, 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 Broussard said that the conditions were f- f- uh, due to inexperienced members being placed in charge of the children while he was away, um, but it was the result of a punishment for her allegedly stealing some food <gasps> from oh, another child. My, I don't think I can say the G word right now. That is disturbing. I can't, I can't fathom. 
I, God, I'm just thinking about that young girl. What a horrific short life to live. Right. Um, moving around, living in those conditions, like, and even the way we were hearing it, I was picturing like a large place. And then like yeah. you asked something like, was there like farm equipment? He's like, no, nothing like that. Yeah. And reading this, it seems like it was just a house on not a very large property. My God. Fuck. That's that's terrible. I think the only like most recent horrible thing like that that's happened in Oregon was uh, the the Hart, the the Hart family. Right. Um, but that just like fuck. It is just like the Hart family. I think about where you had these two uh, white, uh, thin, attractive lesbian moms who had adopted like five black kids and were posting all the time this inspiration porn of these kids who were clearly malnourished because they were short for their age and just the cutest pictures of them, like with pancakes and right. with farm animals and wearing tie-dye shirts. And it were the, they were the most beautiful pictures. And the entire time they were being abused. Right. Um, and now they're dead. So it's so... It's so sad. Especially because how much we hear these stories about black kids experiencing this. I don't hear a lot of stories of white kids who experience that. Like in like chattel, like fucking like in clusters of abuse. Like that is something. 50 something kids. Yeah. Fuck. Well, Mr. One made it out. He did. Uh, and is uh, inspirations. We can end this on a, g- a good note. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's say some good things. That was definitely not an easy thing to make it out of. The best thing that he said in this interview, this interview was life-changing for me. And I love when we were talking about hip-hop. And mm. again, hip-hop is something that's gotten a lot of critique. And right. I loved your story, Greg, with your father. And, you know, we need to bring your father on the podcast and give him some talking to. But, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, he said, you know, everyone's over here critiquing all of the, the context of what hip-hop is talking about. And they want us to cancel hip-hop. But why can't you cancel the conditions that are causing these rappers to talk about these things? Right. I was just like, fuck, that is exactly the problem. Getting rid of hip hop is not going to end all of the violence, right, but getting rid of the violence will, yeah. Change the hip hop. Yeah. yeah, totally. All right. It's beautiful. All right, let's talk about some news. All right. Something major has happened in Portland. Uh, we have heard about different proposals on this for a long time. We have seen... Uh, politicians you would accept, expect or not expect to be supporting this, but uh, specifically I am talking about body cameras in Portland, so uh, on Portland police officers. And so there's been different proposals uh, by city council at different times. It ends up that the reason we are getting body cameras is actually as a result of the DOJ settlement. Um, and part of their recommendations to the police bureau. And so uh, there's been sort of, I I think a lot of people who don't pay a ton of attention to uh, police and advocates uh, around police reform uh, think that body cameras is a a no-brainer. And it's actually a lot of people on the left or those who are police watchdogs, et cetera, who have been against body cameras. So up until very recently, Commissioner Hardesty was a, a 
strong opponent of mm. body cameras and people like Juan Chavez from the OJRC has spoken about how uh, it increases surveillance. It's like a police officer who can't blink, things like that. So there has been arguments mm. even from the left. Mm. And, you know, recently Commissioner Hardesty has believed that there were ways that we could implement body cameras that would be effective in sort of a change of position that I agree with. And, uh, and now it seems like they are coming, but not as a result of Portland City Council, although they will have to implement parts of it, but um, in part due to the DOJ settlement. Mm. So what was the position that you kind of agree with? Uh, well, I, I think that um, I was one of the people who was just inherently sort of pro body camera. Oh, good. Me too. Um, and so, uh, it's been a weird position to deal with because it right. feels like you're supposed to be anti anything police related that has the even inkling of possibly not being good. That's no. true. And, and yeah. I think, you know, for, in part for good reason, because it's hard to point to a new tool the police have been given that has been used, like, in an equitable way. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's just... For but what about all those stories that we saw of, like, the body cameras actually showing corrupt cops? Right, and that's yeah. totally happened. I think one of the arguments that people would make against that is even when we catch them, we're not seeing a ton of accountability. Because yeah. um, could a police surveil anyways without being legally required to? That's uh, my other thing. I'm like... You mean, like turn on a recording device yeah okay they like just that. record you if they wanted to yeah well that's part of the problem too is that people think you know there's also been incidents of police body cameras not allegedly working at the most like uh convenient time for them yeah. or them being turned off and but stuff does that like make that. you anti-body camera no not me it's, i know it, but yeah. what well, it but it, it it would if i was pretty convinced that that is how they were going to use it because if it's only used as a tool i mean we have to consider that in mean. a lot of places police do support body cameras mm -hmm. because one they don't think they're doing mm -hmm. much wrong and you know two they think that more often than not this will vindicate them mm -hmm. um there certainly are times where people misremember mm -hmm. went through a traumatic experience or you know like if you're being mm -hmm. kicked and you have your hands over your head and stuff, sometimes it's hard to say how many times you were kicked or yeah. who kicked you and stuff yep. like that. Or if it was a foot versus a knee or something like that. And um, so, and sometimes people, you know, I'm sure do lie about their police interactions and stuff. And so um, police have thought that this could be a really good way to vindicate them often too. And if they have the ability to control when and when it's not working or is on, then mm. I, I can see that. But for me, it's just like, okay, then let's build those safeguards in, mm -hmm. right? Have them not be in control of it and maybe not even control of the footage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way that I've talked about it is that it's an equity issue. You know, the, the naysayers have said a lot of like, well, the citizen should be the one doing the recording. But like, again, what if you're being tased and kicked? You can't mm -hmm. be doing the recording. And what if you don't have a phone? Like mm -hmm. there's a real equity issue where 
the most marginalized people are the least likely to be able to just whip out a phone mm -hmm. and start recording. And, you know, we saw from, you know, Rodney King on as things started getting mm -hmm. caught on video. Obviously, people didn't have cell phone videos then. But I think a lot of people's thought with all of those videos has been, yeah. wow, like how much is this happening and we're not catching yeah. on video. And yep. obviously a lot because now the frequency of videos, now that everybody has a phone in their pocket, is way up. Mm -hmm. But not everybody is recording every police um, instance and yeah. stuff. And then there's also some people have um, privacy concerns. And they about might shoot you for pulling out your phone. Like true. Yeah. Often. Yeah. Right. Um, it's not easy to like start recording police mid arrest or yeah. you know, many times you don't even know they're coming, etc. So uh, there are people also that have concerns about um, uh, victims rights and, you know, them being on film, mm. uh, you know, in some bad situations, domestic violence, stuff mm -hmm. like that situations, mm -hmm. uh, and that being a privacy concern as well. So. Okay. I could hear that one. Yeah. So what, what exactly happened with the court case? Where the DOJ as part of their recommendations that we're mm. under this sort of being guided by them. We don't necessarily have to do everything, but are, uh, they have recommendations and stuff. And one of them is to implement body cameras. And because of that, uh, they're getting approved. So uh, it's not an order. It's an order. It's not an it's order. It's not an order. Okay. But no, they, but they Portland are happening. City Council is approving it because of the DOJ. Interesting. Okay. Great. Well, body cams coming to you. <laughs> I gotta wear something sexy, y'all. <laughs> well, that was our interview and hot take with DJ OG1. I hope y'all enjoyed this. And yes, thank y'all for listening. See you later, neighbor. Stay lovely. Your neighborhood, black friends, is brought to you by Kelly's Olympian on Southwest 4th and Washington. You can learn more about Kelly's at kellysolympian.com. Financial support is also provided by Underdog Law Office. You can learn more about Underdog Law Office at underdoglawyer.com. Our music is by Donovan Breakwater. Our branding design is by Lindsay Hoft. This episode was recorded by Brian Woolen and mixed by Nalene Silva. And we are produced by me, Chris Walsmith. Thank you so much to this week's guest, DJ OG1. Thank you to our Patreon. Go Blazers. And of course, thank you for listening.